Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's version of the 1 Million by 1 Million podcast. In today's edition, we are speaking with Greg Stance of Costano Ventures. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Well, tell us about your investing focus. How big is the fund? What size investments are you making? Let's get to know each other. Yes, absolutely. So Costanoa Ventures invests in uh, in the entire stack of business-facing software. So companies that change the way the world does business were investing out of a $175 million third fund. And I'd say mm-hmm. they, we there are two modes. Uh, we do seed investments, which most typically are half a million to a million and a half dollars mm-hmm. where we lead or co-lead and series A investments that range from two to six million dollars to, to check okay. to lead a series A financing. And you said business facing, so it's a B2B fund, yeah? That's right. Fundamentally, we're a B2B fund and it, it, these days that is a ton of data and AI driven applications for business workflows, business processes, vertical software, as well as business marketplaces, security, data stack, and DevOps. But that, that's really, okay. for the most part, the set of things that's that a spectrum. And what about geography? Well, we we invest all over uh, all over the U.S. We're principally a U.S. focused firm. Uh, we have slightly more than half of our investments are in Silicon Valley, broadly construed, and mm-hmm. the two biggest clusters outside of that have been in Boulder and New York City. But we're open to things uh, all all over the country, and we have also found an increasing number of companies that are started elsewhere, but they are moving or have moved headquarters to Silicon Valley. That trend mm-hmm. has been going on for about 10 years, but it really didn't happen very much 15 or 20 years ago. And so, for example, we have three companies that were started in Australia. Uh-huh. There's a lot of that going on. We've done case study after case study of companies that have been started somewhere else and eventually moved either to Silicon Valley or to the U.S. and, and have done very, very well. And, and we've even seen, of course, some companies like Atlassian, speaking of Australia, have done very well. Absolutely. The, the thing that we all realize, and probably your audience realizes more than most, is that there are smart, driven, creative people all over the world. And the wonderful yeah. thing about both the venture capital industry and a platform such as yours is that it is enabling the great, talented, driven, creative people, regardless of where they are. Yeah. And, um, you know, the learning has really accelerated around the world. So what used to be kind of these tribal knowledge in Silicon Valley once upon a time has really become global knowledge at this point. And um, platforms such as ours have have definitely contributed to that, but in general, the internet has contributed to that knowledge becoming global. That's absolutely right. The the early writings of uh, friends and good partners like Fred Wilson and Brad Feld and David Hornick and others, I think, started to crack open the, uh, the velvet curtain and give people access into the venture capital process and mindset and how best to work. And then that's obviously 
rippled on through itself with uh, with a great many really sharp and and intelligent blogs, both by founders and by venture capitalists. Yeah. So if you look at the last six months in your deal flow, could you synthesize what kind of trends um, you're seeing that are interesting and worth discussing? Uh, yes. I would say... So, by the way, I very much tend to think micro bottoms up and rather than thematically and distilling into trends. So I will force my mind to, to, to follow your question, but I also think it, there's, there's a natural bias towards, towards recency. I, I think the number one thing that we see and that we're working on is the applications of the broadly construed modern AI stack to a set of business problems. And so the platform opportunities in and around AI have is now in the land of giants. And so those I think are going to be relatively few and far between, but as it penetrates into, you know, deeply into industries, there are extraordinary opportunities. So when I founded the firm, the, "Quote unquote founding blog post was about what the what the blank is applied big data and applied AI has a very similar playbook meaning you know ultimately you need to aggregate curate and originate data and it because if you, in the long run if you don't have unique and proprietary data sets uh, then it's going to be awfully hard to defend your business you at least need to be a world class adopter of the modern stack of technologies." Sometimes yes. an inventor, but sometimes being a world-class adopter of the of the modern stack is enough. And then you have to find a substantial business problem and do customer discovery and build your way up the stack to completely solve that problem. And so yeah. we've, for example, done things recently in – uh, neither of which is announced, but I'll allude to here, uh, knowing that will likely be published in a, in a few weeks, uh, one in what I'll call retail automation and another in, uh, in, another in aquaculture. So mm-hmm. these are going deep into vertical industries that solve end-to-end problems in really fundamental ways by a- applying that technology stack. So let me ask you a question in what you're seeing along those lines. I'm, I'm completely with you, and I've written extensively on this topic that the, the, the opportunities in AI is in applied AI, and the, the unfair advantage is in the hands of people who have really deep domain knowledge in a particular domain where you apply the stack and, create, and solve a business problem. So you mentioned agriculture, for instance. Um, if you look at that particular um, company, where is that domain knowledge coming from? What is the genesis and um, anecdotal, um, you know, founding of that company? How did this expertise come together? The combination of re- reasonably good understanding of the AI stack and the domain knowledge. Yeah, that's a great question. I think because there are one of the things that we all experience are people who have the 
technical knowledge and then start out saying, great, where do I apply it? How do I go look for a problem to solve? And uh, sometimes one can find them a business partner who comes from the domain and has the domain experience. And so there's basically a, you know, a, a, you know, an arranged marriage process there. In this case, it was a little bit of serendipity. Uh, so specifically, the founder was, in, in fact, looking for a problem to solve, but had been introduced to a professor of aquaculture who said, oh, if you applied in this context, you know, there could be, you know, you, you may in fact be able to help optimize feeding patterns and identify health problems and some other things. And the and so that was basically an initial thread that a still relatively young founder went and started pulling. And so for mm-hmm. me, the thing that is so Im- impressive, and it's well, the kind of thing that we look for in founders is there was a natural curiosity to say, oh, that sounds interesting. Let me go pull it even though yeah. it's deep into the into fish farming. And the initiative to say, I'm just going to show up and I'm going to start going to conferences and I'm going to ask people questions. And yeah. there's an, a, a salesmanship to be able to just show up at big companies and say, hey, by the way, I've fit together this thing and I think it would really help and, you know, let's go pilot this together. And so it is, uh, in the end, I think being open-minded about the kinds of problems that might present themselves, being disciplined enough to say, hey, is this a big enough problem that anybody cares if I solve it, and then going out to find partners. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I'm always curious about the origin stories of uh, companies, especially when they're, you know, cross-domain expertise involves, I mean, people's lives don't cross paths naturally. These, the, the, anecdote you just described, this, this, their lives don't necessarily cross paths this, that easily or that naturally. So how these problems get solved based on what set of circumstances is always very interesting to watch. Very interesting. And it really does, for, and this is the challenge for all of us. We have our networks, we have our areas of knowledge and the like. And every once in a while, I think, you know, so it, it really does require this natural curiosity and then the willingness to just go follow that, right? Yeah. As a venture capitalist, sometimes it's, I've met with this person, the thing that they're talking about, I know nothing about, but boy, that's an impressive person. It sounds reasonable. I'm just going to go figure it out. Right. But it's, it comes with the spark of being an impre- impressed by a person enough to say it's worth figuring it out because we can't write a check until we've done the work. Yeah, you have to do you on your side. You have to do that same amount of work to understand the opportunity, at least up to some degree, to be able to make that decision. Absolutely. So, what uh, what about your current portfolio? What are the highlights of the portfolio? What have you invested in aside from the two that you mentioned that you're about to close? What what are some interesting opportunities, some deals that you've invested in, and how did you process those? Why did you choose to invest in those? Well, uh, I would say there are so there are a wide variety of really interesting ones. So a, a couple of examples, just as thumbnail sketches. One, a recent investment that we announced is called Roadster, and it's e-commerce infrastructure, uh, sort of omni-channel e-commerce infrastructure sold to auto dealers, and so we were 
it's a very experienced product team. They built a beautiful and highly functional product. Interestingly, they built it originally at, to offer a business to, consu- uh, to consumer service themselves, and mm-hmm. they had themselves basically decided to pivot and make it a tool available to dealers and then had gotten very rapid traction around it. And so we had to go and, uh, similar to what I said, go investigate what our auto dealers currently using, what are the constraints in the industry, to what, you know, what are the influence of big dealer groups and the auto OEMs, and came away thinking that there was a great opportunity here to replace tools and technologies that had been built 20 years ago. And the, the other thing that I'll note that's interesting is that it was a company that had been largely angel finance up till then, and their original orientation was, hey, we'll just keep doing uh, more of that with uh, angel investors and on notes and the like. And we did a bunch of work and came away and said, you know, we think that it's actually a great time for you to do Series A. You should take more money than you expected because you can deploy it really successfully in something that's already working. And it's a great time to bring on an institutional partner to help you do that. So that's one example uh, that we're mm-hmm. really excited about. Uh, another one would be Alation, which is an enterprise data catalog. It is founded by Satyan Sengani, uh, who is who remains CEO, co-founded with Venki uh, Ganti and, uh, and, and uh, Satyan. Uh, we invested at company formation. We uh, led the seed financing. We incubated here at Costanoa and then subsequently led the Series A financing. And they just did a Series B financing over the summer led by the team at, uh, at Icon Ventures. So that's another one that, we're, that I'm excited about, and I think it demonstrates the role that the seed financings can play for us, which is we're willing to invest very early around great people uh, we, you know, we can incubate. We have an operating team that we're that, uh, in particular, a uh, partner for sales and a partner for marketing that can work with companies day in and day out and help them grow more efficiently and figure out how to lay down those first foundational bricks of building companies. And that's the work that we like to do. So you are. What you're saying is that you are open to doing even precede investments? Yes. Uh, those kinds of investments, they tend to be in more experienced founders mm-hmm. more often than not uh, mm-hmm. and or people that we've known for a longer period of time. But yes, we've at, at ZenIQ and at Acme and at Alation, we've invested effectively at company formation. Yeah. And, and I think that is kind of the trend is that if you are a first-time founder, your <laughs> journey of getting pre-seed investment is very tough. If you're a repeat fund- founder and you have experience, you have track record, then everything is takes on a somewhat different color. But you know, our the vast majority of our community uh, that is looking for financing is first-time founders. So I tend to tell them to, you know, try to get more validation done so that. You know, because people don't really know you. People are basically betting, not betting on your track record. They're betting on your 
future, and that's harder to prove without some traction, some validation from the market. That's certainly right, and I think it is uh, one of the ways to think about it is that it's very hard for an investor to make a decision in the context of a two or three week sales cycle and, and or bake off about some uh, about a somebody they've never met. And That's so right. this idea of longitudinal data helps. And I would say that it's productive to get to know people that are potential future investors to keep yeah. them apprised of the progress in the business that if they see you articulating goals and then going out and hitting those goals and doing that repeatedly, that's very impressive. Now, yeah. it's also the case that even if the business changes or evolves, if you end up interpreting that data really well and they see you continuing to navigate to a better and better place, that's really productive. And it is a form of, even if it turns out that they're not the right investor, they may say, you know, uh, that, as it turns out, the place you've evolved to really isn't for us. But boy, if you call, you know, my friend, uh, you know, Susan so and so, you know, this is the kind of thing that she's working on and really likes. Yeah, yeah, and and I think the the thing that really works like magic is if you can start to show product market fit and some at least promise of velocity <laughs> within that market. And if if you can do that with a bootstrapped situation, then funding becomes, uh, the probability of funding just goes up dramatically. Well, yeah, and, and to me the fundamental thing is uh, product market fit is magic, right? I mean, magic, and I don't mean yeah, getting it absolutely. is magic, but it's, I mean, it <laughs> is the, it, it, and, and so the way we've tried to operate as a, as, as a firm is that, you know, our partners are all people who have not only been product managers and shipped products, but they've shipped 1.0 products right? So first time in market. And so that means that the work that we do around customer discovery, you know, how big a problem is this? How do you do it today? What features does it need to have in order to be, you know, to replace your current workflow? How much would you pay for it? Who else have you looked for? You know, those are very amorphous questions that we're used to trying to get out of, of people. But to me, the as a, as a founder, the fundamental thing you're trying to do is to get to product market fit. Because once yep. you get to product market fit, you've earned your way into the next set of problems. Yes. Now, I think the challenge is that product market fit has a very amorphous definition, and it now gets thrown around wildly. And so I think people come in and say, hey, we, you know, I've got one customer, and we've got product market fit. And, uh, and then you've got people just repeating Mark Andreessen, who's like, hey, it's hair on fire, I can't fulfill demand. And that's an extreme form of product market fit. So, you know, product market fit is defined customer profile who you consistently serve their needs, consistently yeah. win in those, uh, you know, in those deals and have been able to sell repeatedly. Right. Right. And so yep. there's, there's a, there's a, and with velocity, if it's a you know reasonable product right? market fit with a reasonable sales cycle, that's a very important point. You got it. And I, you know, the ideal, the the next level is somebody other than one of the founders has been able to sell it repeatedly and with velocity, right? Yeah. Then also. you can go build process. You can build a right. sales and marketing machine around it. 
you can't build a sales and marketing machine if the founder is the only person who can sell it. Who can sell so, it, yeah. Very true. So, you know, for us, you know, again, we one of our, even as a smaller boutique firm who's willing to do uh, and engage in seed and even pre-seed processes, you know, we, we, you know, we very much sort of pre that methodology, which is book, nothing important happens until you get product market fit. Yeah. And then, you know, being really methodical about building sales and marketing machinery, which starts out with, oh, who's the first person to hire in, you know, I'm, I'm the founder, I've sold four of them. Who do I hire next? Yeah. And as I've written, uh, including recently, I think the idea that someone who's a multi-skilled Swiss army knife, a little bit more like a business development person, is usually better at figuring out what that uh, sales cycle looks like than your traditional coin-operated salesperson who's used to being handed a playbook and handled handed sales enablement and handed Yeah, uh, early stage startup sales is a very different ballgame than just a pure uh, sales uh, job, right? There's still a, some, um, some level of product discovery and still some level of process discovery going on, messaging discovery going on that uh, I think it's, it's a different animal. The early stage sales guys are a different animal. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So, a few trend questions, uh, Greg. What... Um, how do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? How does a seed investor mitigate the Series A gap? And, you know, statistically, there have been, clearly, there's been a lot of micro VCs in the market uh, that have come into the market in the last five years. A lot of uh, seed investment, pre-seed investment, pre-Series A investment, um, 50,000 to 70,000 investments a year. But the Series A number remains constant, twelve hundred to fifteen hundred. How do you how do you parse this trend? Well, I, you know, in some ways, I'd say uh, that is the trend that we play into, and so a little more than half of our new investments are Series A investments. But it is, of course, the vast majority of our capital goes into Series A investments. And I love the fact that everybody else is retreating from it. You know, the big firms, you know, they have some success, their egos grow, their fund sizes grow, and they go on to piling into unicorns. That's completely uh, good news for us. And we find that we don't end up competing against them very often. Uh, I What's do your think preferred that, check size? Well, for these Series A's, it's been usually... Two, two or three to six million dollars. Mm -hmm. So you would do. And, you know, we're usually the or, the lead or the organizing principle of the round, but there's usually some other capital around us uh, as as well. Mm -hmm. But you're okay with doing two, three million Series A. You don't have to do a five, six, ten million dollar Series A. Exactly. Yeah, that's the other yeah, issue that's I, going on with the larger funds is that they want to do Series A that are. Actually, once upon a time, used to be called Series B or C. Yeah, and I think I, you know, the, as as you know, the, the the actual designation of the round doesn't really matter very much, and I don't I don't care very much what it what, what it's called. I think uh, round sizes have grown, and you know, look, I started in the venture business 19 years ago. There was no such thing as seed. You know, the first round was a Series A. Uh, right. And, you know, five years ago, there was no such thing as pre-seed. So, That's right. <laughs> right. They were friends and family. <laughs> exactly. 
So, yeah. so those things evolve, but I think the, you know, for us, the way we think of it is, look, we're, in some ways we're kind of an old school venture firm with a bunch of old school practices and some modern innovations on top of it. So, you know, we want to, you know, we're high conviction investors. We're going to go uh, talk to a bunch of customers. We'll introduce you to customers to be able to be part of a sales cycle and see how that works. We're going to do a bunch of diligence. We're going to talk to the people that you've worked with before, but uh, we work as hard after as we do before. We're likely to want to own 20% of the company. We're likely to want to go on the board and we're likely to want to, you know, write a check that's meaningful to us. Now yeah. in, in return, one, you know, gets the benefit of an institutional partner, someone who's got reserves for you, someone who is not just showing up at board meetings, but is thinking about you and working on your business between board meetings, uh, is a thought partner and an idea partner. But then in addition, we've built this sales and marketing team in particular to help what are typically product-oriented founders figure out how to build that initial sales and marketing process, and then subsequently the machinery behind it. And so, yeah. you know, we've kind of architected that position for ourselves in the market. And frankly, there, you're right. There is a gap and there aren't very many people who do what we do. Mm-hmm. And how do you parse uh, unicorn mania? As a seed investor, you could get buried under later stage liquidation preferences. How do you protect yourself? Yeah, I think the... Um, so I, I, the unicorn mania, as you describe it, I think is uh, certainly a, a, a huge part of it, though not all of it is in the business consumer segment. But, you know, it does matter to, uh, to have uh, teams that are long-term dedicated to companies and for the right reasons. It does manage, matter to have the right partners are, on the board at every stage. It does matter to have a capital structure where everybody's got the opportunity to work together. And so a recent example of that for us was the sale of Intact to what is now called Sage Intact. And Mm -hmm. that was $850 million. So it was sub-unicorn level, but a highly successful outcome. And to me, that was one where we, we were in there with terrific partners Emergence and Jackson Square and Battery and Bessemer and Split Rock. Uh, everybody was um, everybody made money that was stage appropriate. The management team made money. Customers were really well served. Employees, you know, I, I, I like saying um, Intact was only on the cover, only in TechCrunch when it made a funding announcement. It was never covered, not once. No, I covered them. I, I, I covered them but right, on, the, but on, but right on, along. On tech, absolutely, on, on TechCrunch in particular. And, um, and yet it is exactly the kind of great Silicon Valley company creating value for everybody that we, you know, that we should be focused on. And I don't particularly care about that. It was more important that we won industry awards. We won product awards. We won best CEO awards. We won uh, best places to work awards. And to me, that's the substance of how great companies are built. And so uh, the press necessarily focuses on unicorns and they focus on the brash, uh, ego-driven venture capital investors and they focus on a handful of CEOs who 
uh, are, get themselves in trouble. But the, the real answer is I just ignore it all. Yeah, I, and, and I find it not very relevant to my business, and uh, and therefore, you know, I focus on working with great people and being a really good partner. Yeah, and I think this whole unicorn mania has been created by the sheer stupidity of the entrepreneurship media. They've just been played, and it's like they're so driven by funding announcements. Every time somebody has a funding announcement, they go run up lots of articles about the funding announcements and entrepreneurs mistakenly believe that funding announcements are good. It's not necessarily good. If you raise too much money, you've priced yourself out of the market. That's right. And I, and I do think that the, the founders and earlier stage investors together saying, hey, who's the right partner for this round and what's the right, you know, what's, uh, it, it seems crazy to say, oh, I'm not going to just go maximize price. And am I doing my fiduciary responsibility for everyone if I'm not going to maximize price? But I think what, um, you know, what, what ends up happening is that, you know, you can take a higher top-line price with a bunch of structure and more preference stack, or you can take a lower price that's, uh, that doesn't have multiple preferences or, or other things. You can find partners who want to help you build the business that you want to build as opposed to saying, hey, I'm here to provide rocket fuel. And by the way, this thing, you know, if you put rocket fuel on it, it might blow up. But, you know, I don't care. I'm just in the orbital business. And, you know, so founders and CEOs and leadership teams and boards can say, hey, this is the plan we want to sign up for, even if, and we think that's the one that optimizes value. And, is consistent with the business that we want to build and we could do things in ways that are um, sloppy or that are excessive or that lack controls and temporarily get unicorn status uh, yeah. but it may not be in the best interest of the business. Yeah, that's right. Now, um, last question, which is also a bit of a trend question. It kind of follows from what we were talking about earlier about the opportunities in AI, but it's, this, is, this question is not just AI-specific, but in general, uh, in the market, one of my observations is that we are at the end of 2017. Lots of stuff have already been built. Nowadays, there aren't so many wide-open opportunities out there. There are many niche opportunities. Um, you know, a smaller TAM. It may not be a billion-dollar TAM, but there are, you know, $100, $200 million TAM opportunities. Some of these businesses need to be built for small amounts of capital and sold for, you know, lower exit prices. Is this something that you consider, or is it something outside of your uh, purview? That's a great question, and it's a great question for founders to to think about themselves in the context of, you know, financing processes. So I'll, I'll say the answer is a, is a little bit both. So one, I, you know, look, we aspire to be involved in the biggest and best companies in our sector, and we are, you know, excited about looking for things that have that if they work, they've got platform effects or network effects that can be multipliers of value. And, uh, so th th those things are particularly exciting for us. O on the other hand, I would also point out that 
upfront TAM analysis in early stage companies is really, really hard and sometimes mis- misleading. And I think judging TAM properly is, uh, is, is difficult. Myself, I think I'm much better at assessing product and product market fit than I am at TAM, and I'm pretty much willing to live and die with those skills. Mm-hmm. Now, I do think that in a fund like ours, there are you know things where you say, oh, it can be a couple few hundred million dollar outcome. You know, those will work for us, and we're you know we hope that having earned yourself into the later stages of the company, you you know you might find adjacencies or the like. Uh, those don't work in the context of the bulge bracket venture firms. It doesn't work at Sequoia or Benchmark or Andreessen or, yeah. or Excel, right? They, they just don't care. Um, I do think that a founder who is in one of those markets should recognize that one, TAM will be a problem. Two, you've got to capitalize it in a way where if it turns out that you're selling it for $100 million, it is uh, it, it, it works for everybody. And then it will be harder to, to, to raise capital. And I'm thrilled that the set of seed firms and accelerators and incubators are providing some set of resources to those kinds of companies, but I think people who are really institutional venture capital will have a hard time making their funds yeah. work. Yeah, and most of them are not going to play in that hundred million dollar no. That's right; they're not going to play. And in in fact, you know, in the because there's such a, a proliferation of you know accelerators and um, micro VCs right now, uh, there are I've I've seen some investment pieces that are, you know, invest maybe one to two million dollars and not raise any, uh, you know, institutional venture per se and just exit right away for 10 to 15 million dollars or 10 to 20 million dollars and uh, take a good multiple but work in a very different segment of the market than the much larger uh, opportunities, much larger outcomes. So there's, well, and there's a lot of experimentation I, going on. There, there absolutely is. And I think it can very well be the case that, for example, for a first-time founder, that is a very significant exit. It's both real money for the first time in one's life, and it gives one a track record to, yeah. to in their next company, take a bigger swing and have more access to capital and talent earlier in their life cycle. So Right, idea- and, and, and I, I think uh, given how uh, how much emphasis the ecosystem places on you know, bootstrapped validation, having some capital available from a previous venture to bootstrap the next venture for a serial entrepreneur is a very, very good strategic move. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. All right. Any parting comments for our uh, community of entrepreneurs who would be interested in working with you? Uh, To me, the most important thing is that you're focused on the main thing. And the main thing is understanding customers and their problems, building stuff that's of value to them. And if you do that, everything else uh, will come with it. And we love working with product-oriented founders who can help us understand the problems they're solving and why. Great. Well, thank you, Greg, for participating. And thank you, listeners, for listening. If you're enjoying the segments that we are producing, please go to iTunes and review the podcast. And stop by at our Thursday morning uh, free mentoring sessions. Go to the website, 1mby1m.com, and go to free public roundtables to sign up. 
See you soon. Thank you for coming.